Well, I don't like to be a naysayer, but my voice is a little bit hoarse this morning. And uh, thanks. And this is a long passage, and we'll see how I hold up. Uh, we're reading this morning from Luke 17, verse 20, to Luke 18, verse 8. Please rise for the reading of God's word. Luke 17, starting at verse 20. Once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Men will tell you, There he is, or here he is. Do not go running off after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. <clears throat> but first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, two people will be in bed. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord? they asked. He replied, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice, and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You may be seated. My notes escaped me. So I'm just reminded this morning that uh, God is with us. God is watching over us. Uh, you know, we have Pastor Jim Houston speaking with us this morning. Um, God is watching over us. He's supplying the needs that we have. Uh, Ken and Carr are back from their vacation just on Friday. We're welcoming you back. Glad that you had a good, safe vacation. And uh, we've had the privilege of having Pastor Zig preach course, Pastor Gary. Today we have Pastor Jim Houston, and uh, I'm not sure where the notes went, but they're somewhere here, but it doesn't matter. I'm just going to wing it. Jim, so if I'm wrong, you guys will learn something that, about him that didn't really exist. But anyways, Jim, uh, Jim has been in the ministry, I believe, for 40 years. 
So in a number of different denominations, uh, lived in Calgary for the last number of years in McHugh and Glen. They have three boys and I believe nine grandchildren. Is that correct? So far, so good. But uh, once a pastor, always a pastor. Once a preacher, always a preacher. Jim has also been uh, helping out to, uh, by preaching at uh, Renfrew uh, when Pastor Zig is not preaching. And uh, since mid-September, uh, him and his wife Carolyn have, have been in our midst a lot. And it's, it's been a real privilege and a joy to get to know you a little bit more. And uh, we're just so grateful that, uh, that you're here today to share the Word of God. So, Jim, come on up, and uh, we welcome you uh, to the pulpit this morning, and may the Lord uh, richly bless you as you bring the Word of God. There we go. How's that? <laughs> um, <clears throat> since uh, coming here in mid-September, Carol and I have felt warmly welcomed among you. Uh, we've really enjoyed the great music that is a part of the fellowship here, being involved in a couple small groups on, on different occasions and getting to know you as a church. And as I look at the time this morning, I'm a little reminded of uh, little Johnny who's sitting in the family pew as the pastor gets up to speak and knowing that by now that everything that you do in church has significance, when he sees the pastor take off his watch and put it on the pulpit, he asked his mom, what does that mean? Nothing, his mother said, absolutely nothing. <laughs> so we'll do our best to get you out of here in good time. Um, the early uh, 21st century has seen some very chaotic times. Uh, even in Western Canada, as our society and our world undergo major and devastating change. And I just want to mention to you some of the topics that have been in the news the last little while, and those will bring uh, before your mind some of the things that have happened. So in the news, you, we've talked about Islamic terror, about human, human trafficking, about 9-11, about war, whether in South Sudan or in Syria or in Ukraine, about earthquakes and tsunamis and suicide bombers, about abortion and transgenderism and West Nile virus and BSE and avian influenza and gay marriage and LGBTQ2, and I could go on. All within the last short, reasonably short period of time. Life can be overwhelming at times. In August of 2003, I was traveling on a ministry trip up the spine of BC, Highway 97, and um, during that time, some 700 forest fires were raging in the province. And as I was listening to uh, CBC, um, one reporter was recounting the situation and the distress of those who had been forced to flee from their homes by forest fires coming down the mountains at them in Kelowna. And in what was almost an aside, um, the reporter noted the following question, which a little girl had asked of her mother. Mommy, is this the end of the world? And she wasn't joking. That was 
Her world was being threatened by those fires coming down the mountainside. And so you may ask, and rightly so, how are we as Christians to handle all of this stuff? How are we to respond to personal crisis, to the crises that come to our neighbors, to our community, to our church? What do we do when times are tough? How do we keep our perspective, our faith in God, our love for people around us? And I've given you a little outline in your bulletin that has the major points that I'm going to use and also on the backside some of the scriptures I'm going to refer to. You can look them up in your own Bible and that's good. You can also follow them there if you want. <clears throat> and the words of Jesus in the latter part of Luke 17, which was very well read for us in spite of your voice, um, and the early verses of Luke 18 give us some, some helpful and some calming wisdom from God about what we do when times are tough. So Luke 17, verses 20 to chapter 18, verse 8. As human beings, we respond to tough times in many different ways. And let me just suggest some of them. As men, particularly, we just double our efforts, right? We just work harder. If times are tough, we just work harder. We get a second job if we need to, to try to solve the problem. Another way that people respond is you see in our culture particularly, a steady rise in stress and worry and depression and despair. Those things are on constant rise. If you Google that and depression, you'll find how much it is a problem within our society. Other ways that people cope with tough times is through frantic pursuit of ways to forget, to dull the pain, to avoid the problems hoping that they'll go away. And so you see, again, huge rises in terms of substance abuse and all sorts of other things. So Jesus does not suggest here in Luke's gospel that we work harder, fret about, ignore, or forget the tough things of life. Rather, he says that there's at least four things that we should remember as we go through the tough things of life. And those are the four things I want to talk to you about this morning. And the first thing we need to remember in tough times is we're to remember God's kingdom. Chapter 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, or within you, or among you. The people of Jesus' day in the land of Palestine were experiencing very tough times. They were under the military occupation of Rome. So in the Sermon on the Mount, when, when Jesus says, if someone forces you to go a mile with him, go too. That's the practice that a Roman soldier could say to any citizen, carry my pack for a mile. And Jesus saying, go the extra mile. They were also um, ruled by the Herods. And of course, Christmas time particularly reminds us of the Herods because it was one of the Herods who had all the boys in the city of Bethlehem killed between a certain ages. They were not nice rulers. And that's what the, the people of Israel lived under. They were a small, powerless nation in a huge empire. And one of the primary concerns of Jewish people during the time of Jesus was when would the Messianic kingdom come? When would the kingdom of God come? And they had read about it in the Old Testament, in First Chronicles, in Psalms, in Daniel, chapter 7 particularly. And that is why the Pharisees asked Jesus about it here. So the Jews, including the disciples, longed for and prayed for and hoped for God's kingdom. 
Now, they had a very mistaken idea of what the kingdom was going to be like. They thought it would be earthly. They thought it would be political. They thought it would be powerful. They would eject the Romans from their country. And so you find Jesus, because of that ignorance of the kingdom of God, teaching about it over and over and over and over again in his ministry. In one of the old Bibles I've got at home, where I used to underline things, I don't so much anymore, um, because I want to keep my Bible in pristine condition, but in the days when I used to underline, in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, I went through and, and 47 or 48 times in the Gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus talks about the kingdom, or the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God is mentioned in some way. So it's a huge theme in the scriptures, one that we can't really understand the message of the Bible without understanding. And Jesus taught about it over and over again. So what is the kingdom? Well, when we think about kingdoms, we think about all-powerful rulers, we think about armies and battles, we think about palaces and finery, we think about loyal subjects and deeds of courage, we think about all sorts of things. And those are involved in the kingdom of God too. But let me give you this definition for what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is that sphere of life where God is king where Jesus as king is honored and obeyed, whether past or present or future. That sphere of life where Jesus, where God is king. So it can be in a heart, a person's heart. It can be in a family, in a home. It can be in a church. So in Luke 17, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And so you can't just look and say, well, I see the kingdom of God. We can see what we think are evidences of it, but we can't necessarily always say this is it. Jesus said to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you or within you. And of course, that's what Christmas celebrates, the coming of the king, right? And so when Jesus said that, he was saying to the Pharisees and to his disciples, the king is here. The king has already started because the king is in the midst of you. Now, at other times, Jesus, as I mentioned, taught many different things about the kingdom. He said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. It's like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And to summarize the vast amount of material in the Bible, let me just note three things about the kingdom that I've given to you there on your outline. First of all, the vital importance of the kingdom. There's nothing more important than being in God's kingdom. Nothing. And so Jesus, in his teaching, said, taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. So when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're praying for the coming of God's kingdom. And of course, if we're honest with ourselves, that means we need to pray that the kingdom of my own heart and my life right here, right? Not somewhere out there, but somewhere right in my own heart and my life. Jesus said, Matthew 6, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Priority of life, seeking first the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I'll look after the rest if you seek my kingdom. Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Talks cheap, right? Jesus says, 
you can say all the words you want, but it's only if you do the will of my Father that you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Matthew 9, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom in his coming to earth. And in Matthew 21, he said to the Pharisees, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. The fact that we go to church doesn't mean we're in the kingdom of God. I hope it means that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. What was the prayer of the public? And God be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the prayer that opens the door uh, to the kingdom of God. So, so there's nothing more important than the kingdom of God. And, and so the question that the preacher has to ask is this, are you part of that kingdom? Is that kingdom ruling and reigning within you as a person? Can you said to be part of the kingdom of God because you rule, because Jesus rules in your heart, because you daily bow before him? Second thing, it's present manifestation. A scholar named George Eldon Ladd, <clears throat> who most guys have gone to Bible school and ladies too have studied, said that the kingdom is already and not yet. And, uh, and that's a good way to remember. It's already come in the person of Jesus, but it's still coming in the sense of the fullness of the kingdom of God is yet to come. So in 2016, we live in a time between the times. And I've given you two little, or a little schematic there. The first advent of Christ on the left, the second advent of Christ on the right, and in the middle is the church age. So the church age is the last days. It is the age that we live in. And that is the present manifestation of the, of the kingdom of God is in that particular form in the form of the church age or the last days. First advent of Christ, he came in, a si in silent and suffering. Isaiah chapter 42, the suffering servant of Jehovah. And the second advent of Christ is best represented probably in Revelation chapter 19 where it represents Jesus as a king riding on a horse, dressed in white, followed by the armies of heaven. And on his thigh is, as one modern commentator says, tattooed. King of kings and Lord of lords. His name is written on him. But we're not there yet. We're in between those two things. And then second, or thirdly, uh, important thing about the uh, kingdom of God is its impending revelation. The Bible teaches that the kingdom of God will soon be revealed in the period of time called the millennium. And you may want to debate that with me about it later, um, and that's okay. I'm not saying that you need to adopt the theology that I think is true, but it's, uh, anyway, it's something of great discussion. When the Lord Jesus will reign in righteousness on this earth for a thousand years. Now, it's interesting to note in here in Luke 17 that Jesus does not say to the Pharisees, well, don't think about the coming kingdom. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to turn out. That's not what he said. He, in effect, commended them for their interest in the kingdom and responded to their questions by giving them more to think about. But friends, it seems to me sometimes that that concern for the kingdom is rare in today's church. Sometimes we're so caught up in what we're doing and where we're going and all the things that busy our lives that we're not thinking a whole lot about the kingdom of God and the coming kingdom in particular. We need to recall what the Bible says. 
as I mentioned, thy kingdom come from the Lord's prayer. First Thessalonians chapter one, it says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul wrote to Timothy in the last book that as far as we understand that Paul ever wrote, the time has come for my departure. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have longed for his appearing. There's a crown that God gives to those who long for his appearing. Not those who say, well, just wait a little while, Lord, or I want to do this, I want to do that. But those who long to see Jesus come. And of course, the words of the second last verse of the Bible, come, Lord Jesus. That's what the Apostle John said. So my friends, when times are tough, remember God's kingdom. In the midst of all the stuff that's happening in your life, in the midst of all the stuff that's happening in our world, keep your eyes on that kingdom, especially on the king who's coming again, Jesus, but also on the fact that we are in the present time when the kingdom is already and not yet. So second thing we want to remember about tough times is remember the nature of the last days. And here in verses 22 to 30 of Luke chapter 17, Jesus talks about what the last days will be like. And we read here a description from him that we'll just want to look at for a few minutes. <clears throat> now Paul, reflecting on the same period, talks to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 about what those times will be like, the last days. And Paul says, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's the world we live in, friends. And we don't like to talk about those things, and in some ways, rightly so, we want to be positive. But if you followed um, the election in the US, you'll see both Democrats and Republicans acting like this, exactly like what we've just read. I'm not wanting to take sides in any particular election thing. And the wonderful thing about, the, the, about all that's just gone by is the theme of the book of Daniel, which is this, that the most high rules in the kingdoms of men and he sets over them whoever he wishes, even the lowliest of men. And so that would give us hope, that's what gives us hope is the fact that God's in control. So that's what the last days are going to be like, Paul says. And Jesus, of course, describes it for us here. What does he say it will be like? He says, you, you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Verse 22. But you won't see it. You'll look back to the time when I was here and you'll long for it, but you, but you won't have that again. People will be running off after false messiahs and gods. Verse 23. And they'll say to you, look there or look here. Don't go out and follow them, for as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. 
So, so Jesus was warning them that he was yet to suffer, yet to die, something that his disciples had a hard time absorbing. And then he says, it will be just like the days of Noah and Lot. <clears throat> so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They're, so what were the days of Noah and Lot like? Well, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all, so will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So how do we pick a few things out of there? Well, the last days then will be days when life goes on as usual. All the things that normally happen keep on happening. But there's a tremendous apathy toward God and his kingdom, toward anything to do uh, with God. doesn't mean there's not people who long and who come to Christ during that period of time. That's not what it's saying. It's more describing the whole culture. It will also be a day when God delivers its own. <clears throat> it's interesting that the fire didn't fall on Sodom until Lot was out of there, and the flood didn't come on the day, in the days of Noah until Noah and his family were safe in the ark. So God looks after his own. But it will also be a day when judgment is going to fall on people without warning and destroy them all. And again, we don't talk about this much, but you know, we look at the person who walks downtown with the, you know, the sandwich board sign that says the end is near. And probably he's right. We feel a little embarrassed to see him there, but... He's probably right. You see, we hesitate to proclaim this idea that judgment is going to fall on our whole world and destroy them all. We hesitate to say that. But I want you to know that Jesus didn't have that hesitation. He didn't have that hesitation at all. Luke chapter 13, twice he says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And of course, you probably know that Jesus is the one who spoke of hell more than anyone in the New Testament. So when times are tough, my friends, remember that you're living in the last days, a time that Jesus said would be days of longing, days of wickedness, days of apathy, days of ignorance toward God, and days when judgment will fall without warning. Well, there's a third vital thing to remember when times are tough, and that is this. Remember Lot's wife. Now, it may be a little hard for us to figure out why Lot's wife is mentioned here. At least it took me a little while to think through, and I think I've got it right, but I'm not exactly sure. But why does Jesus talk about this unfortunate lady in the midst of this time when he's talking to his disciples about the last days? Well, it seems to me that Jesus is reminding us that in the last days when times are tough, you need to keep your priorities straight. You need to be thinking clearly and have your priorities straight. So today, if we find ourselves caught up in our surroundings, focusing on ourselves and our possessions and our plans and our education, on the saving of our earthly lives rather than on the kingdom of God, then we are threatened by the same danger that destroyed Lot's wife. I think you remember the story. The angels came to Sodom in Genesis 19 to rescue Lot and his family out of there. They were only able to persuade Lot and his wife and their daughters to leave. The sons-in-law 
thought Lot was joking when he talked to him about it. And the angel said to them as he hurried them out of the city, escape for your lives, do not look back or stop, lest you be swept away. But Lot's wife did look back. And the Bible tells us she was turned into a pillar of salt. In fact, I'm not sure those of you who went to Israel, but on the way south from the city, where the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were, from the Dead Sea, south to Elat, which is the very lower end of the land of Israel, right along one of those cliffs, there's a, a rock that stands straight up for hundreds of feet called Lot's Wife. It's, it's a mountain that they've called that. So what does Jesus want us to remember here? Lot's wife was saved by God from the judgment of Sodom. But she was not safe. And I fear at times in our churches, and I don't mean just you folks, but in our churches there are many people who outwardly look as if they've been saved, but aren't safe. Because what had taken up root in the heart of Lot's wife takes root in our hearts as well, doesn't it? You see, she loved the world and she couldn't let it go. And in the end, it was her love for the world and its things and its ways that destroyed her. And so, friends, when Jesus talks right after that about whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it and whoever loses his life will keep it, it's when you love Jesus enough to set aside your love for the world that you save your life. When you love Jesus enough to set aside all of that stuff and to follow him with all your heart, that's when you gain your life. Eli Wiesel has written a number of books, um, ones that I find hard to read. They're so full of suffering. But in one of his books called The Testament, Eli Wiesel tells that the Jewish people have a tradition. It's a non-biblical tradition, but it's a tradition about the just men whom God sends to speak to his people. And this is one of the stories. One of the just men came to Sodom, determined to save its inhabitants from sin and punishment. Night and day he walked the streets and markets, protesting against greed and theft, ironic, against falsehood and indifference. In the beginning, people listened and smiled ironically, and then they stopped listening because he no longer amused them. The killers went on killing. The wise kept silent as if there were not a wise man in their midst. And one day a child, moved by compassion for the unfortunate teacher, approached him with these words. Poor stranger, you shout, you scream. Don't you see that it's hopeless? Yes, I see, answered the just man. Then why do you go on? I will tell you why. In the beginning, I thought that I could change people. Today, I know I cannot. If I still shout today, if I still scream, it is to prevent people from changing me. So friends, the Bible says the world will try to squeeze you into its mold. That's what it tries to do. And the warning of this passage of Lot's wife is don't let the world take up root in your heart so that you love the world more than you love Jesus.
James says to us, if anyone thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Pretty sim I'm a pretty simple person, and so that kind of thing appeals to me because it says, the things I need to do are watch my tongue, what I say, look after people who are in need, and make sure that I'm not stained by the world. That if I do that, that my religion before God is pure and undefiled. So friends, don't be like Lot's wife. Don't let your heart, your family, your life be captured by love for the world. So the final thing that Jesus impresses on us here about what to do when times are tough is this. Remember to pray. And here we have the parable of the persistent widow. And having reflected on all the tough times that are to come before his kingdom arrives in its fullness, Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, and you know, of course, that the chapter headings are not inspired, right? Those aren't there in the Bible. They're in your Bible, but they're there for convenience. It's not, if you were to read a Greek text, you wouldn't see those things, right? So all I'm saying is, I, you feel like I'm skipping over into the next chapter, but it's just Jesus continuing, right? So he tells them this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart or not give up. And friends, praying is always the best way to face difficulty and trouble in our life. And that's why right at the beginning, most parables, you kind of have to figure them out a little bit. This parable, right up at the beginning, he says, this is what it's about. It's to be sure when... He told them a parable to tell them that they shouldn't lose heart, that they should pray. And friends, when you face tough times, those are usually the two alternatives. Either you will lose heart and not pray, or you'll pray and not lose heart. You, you can't, the two usually can't coexist together. So in the midst of our troubles, we may be tempted when everything's happening around us or to us, we may be tempted to see God as the reluctant neighbor, you know, guy had to pound on his door over and over again to get him to give him some bread. Or we may see God as the unjust judge or here in this story, Luke 18, where the only reason that he gives justice to the lady is so she won't wear him out by her coming. It's interesting that God will use those negative things to help us understand him. You know, he, he's okay with taking these strange pictures of people that we know he's not like in order to help us understand what he is like. So God is not the reluctant neighbor. He's not the unjust judge. God is the one who prompts your prayers. When you pray, it's because the Holy Spirit is, is stirring you up to do that. And God is the one who listens to your prayers. In fact, Romans chapter 8, what does the Bible say? Romans chapter 8, it says that the Spirit intercedes for us with sighs too deep for words. When you can't even put into words what it is that is on your heart, the Spirit can. And he intercedes with God for you with those sighs. And God will answer in his time. So we're to pray, to cry out to God in the crises of life. And why? Well, sometimes just because we're overwhelmed, we see our weakness, we feel our helplessness and our need, and we just cry out to God, and that's good. 
Sometimes as people, we just need to be assured that God's love and mercy and grace are waiting to answer your need. Philip Yancey um, once got a postcard from one of his friends. And this is what the postcard said. It said, I am the one Jesus loves. That was all. And I don't think his friend was saying, no, 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 I'm the one he loves, not you. What he was saying is that he'd come to the realization, which we don't think about enough, that you, if you're a Christian this morning, you are the one Jesus loves. That's why he came into this world, if you're a Christian, to call you to follow him and to, to pull his people together into the church and, and so that one day we'll be with him together in heaven. God promises in this passage to give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night and to do so speedily. He's saying, if, the, if this judge will give justice to this widow, God will give justice to those who are his people. And then that last little zinger at the end, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So friends, the Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Impossible. And it's that little seed of faith that hangs on to God when everything looks dark and you don't know where you're going and you can't tell what he's doing. It's hanging on to him with your faith that he gives you that is pleasing to him. So friends, if we don't pray, we may just give up. Prayer is the breath of the Christian. And if we don't breathe, it's hard to survive. Well, let me close with two quotes. One from St. Augustine, the city of God. The city of God was written when uh, the hordes were descending upon Rome and the city of Rome was about to fall and Augustine couldn't figure out why God would allow that to happen. <clears throat> Augustine said this, bad times, hard times, that is what people keep saying. But let us live well and time shall be good. We are the times, such as we are, such are the times. So, friends, in your little sphere of influence, if you live like Jesus, you will make the times better, in spite of the toughness of them. And then, last quote, it's on your insert from Phillips Brooks, and you may not feel like you know him, those who know your music do, of course. Phillips Brooks is the one who wrote O Little Town of Bethlehem. He was still preaching when he was 84 years old. And this is what Phillips Brooks said. Do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Father, in the midst of all the tough times that we live in, the tough times of our lives and of our culture, the things which for some reason or another you have allowed to come our way. We just pray that you'll help us in the midst of those things to remember your kingdom, to remember you, Jesus, as our king, to remember that this is the kind of a time that you told us it would be like. Remember to keep our priorities straight and to remember to pray, to seek you, moment by moment and day by day, that you might encourage us and strengthen us. Thank you for this, your word, for Jesus, our Savior, who came to earth to die for us, that we might live together forever with you. In his name, amen.